Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The clock is ticking on a potential HSR strike. We also talk about your debts. We get an update on what's happening in Gaza, connecting students with employers, and a death doula joins the show. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As you've heard, especially if you rely on the HSR, drivers are on the verge of hitting the bricks as early as Thursday morning. The wage offer that the employer is making right now is about uh, an average of 3.25 per year uh, over the four-year contract. And the reality is uh, inflation this year alone is at 4%. That is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, Eric Tuck, who joined us on Good Morning Hamilton yesterday morning. Later on this morning, representatives with the city of Hamilton are going to be resuming contract negotiations with the union, all the while advising residents to make a plan B just in case of a work stoppage. Carlisle Kahn is the acting city manager, and Laura Fontana is the executive director of Human Resources with the city of Hamilton. And join us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Laura, Carlisle, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Thanks uh, La- for having us. Laura, maybe we'll start with you. We hear that uh, contract talks will be resuming this morning. Uh, wh- what's going to happen? So that's right. They, uh, they're they meeting again this morning to resume the uh, collective bargaining process. So um, we uh, remain uh, optimistic that we can reach a deal if we can. I know there's also going to be conversations about a strike protocol agreement if we're not able to uh, uh, achieve a, a collective agreement through this, this process. So we remain uh, optimistic and uh, we also want to respect the collective bargaining process. Uh, let the uh, folks uh, do do their their work and, and hopefully achieve a, a tentative agreement. With what happened on Sunday with the strike vote and 94% of AT Local 107 members voting in favor of strike action, does that mean today there's a new offer on the table from the city? Uh, not, No, not necessarily. Uh, I think uh, the uh, the uh, collective bargaining teams will, will meet and talk about the uh, latest proposal and see what uh, what is there. But uh, no, it does not mean that there's... Uh, there's more uh, to be offered uh, through this process. Carl, I'll ask you this. Is is there room to budge? Because in any negotiation, any meeting at a bargaining table, there's some give and take. Is there some budge room happening here? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, Rick. And as Laura indicated, both parties are meeting this morning. Uh, where they start and how the discussions progress throughout the day, um, it, it really is a wait and see from our perspective. So, I think that if uh, they work together and they be creative and they look for solutions and they keep in mind the uh, customers that are impacted, they will have a positive outcome. I'll get both your thoughts on this and we'll start with you, Carlisle. Are you more optimistic or more pessimistic knowing what we know in terms of the numbers and what the union's asking for and what the city's offering? Are you more optimistic or pessimistic that a deal will get done before the deadline? I am more optimistic, uh, partly because both parties are back at the table this morning. I think that both parties also value the service that we provide to Hamiltonians. So keeping that in mind, we want to make sure that we continue to provide a safe and effective and efficient services to them. And part of that is negotiating a fair agreement through the uh, collective bargaining process. Laura, do you feel the same as Carlisle? Uh, I, I guess to a certain extent, I, I feel um, optimistic, but I, I, I'd also say I feel hopeful. Uh, not sure what uh, what the resolve will be today, but certainly going into the uh, discussions, um, you know, with uh, with good intentions and in the hopes that we can get a deal. 
Laura, one of the things that Eric Tuck pointed to yesterday was obviously the, the, the pay that others are earning in other communities. And he pointed to, you know, the skilled trades maintenance staff at the HSR can can leave Hamilton. They can go work for Go Transit or in Mississauga or in Brampton and earn three to five dollars more per hour. Is that a major sticking point? So, I, uh, Rick, I, I did uh, I did hear that we are not experiencing any uh, unusual or high turnover. Uh, with our uh, transit uh, group uh, in maintenance or in operations. Uh, we did mention that they are the, ho- the third highest paid um, with our, our comparator, only behind uh, Mississauga and Brampton. Uh, and they would be earning at the end of, with what we've proposed, uh, they would be earning almost $80,000 a year. And that w- is exclusive of any overtime or premiums. Um, so, and that would maintain them uh, third highest amongst the comparators. Talking about a potential HSR strike as of Thursday morning with our two guests, Acting City Manager Carl Kahn, Carl Alcon, and Laura Fontana, the Executive Director of Human Resources, uh, both with the City of Hamilton. Uh, Carlisle, back to you. The last strike here in Hamilton involving the HSR was way back in 1998, so it's been a while. That one, however, lasted 12 weeks. Uh, if there is a work stoppage, whether it's a day, a week, or 12, what is the impact to those who rely on the HSR? Uh, thanks for the question, Rick. I, I think the impact is significant. Um, this morning on your show, we talked about affordability and living wages and the folks that use transit or the folks that need this service. So I think there's a huge impact. And I, I believe that both sides of the, uh, the table, we understand that and we understand the impact it would have on the uh, residents, the uh, businesses and the visitors to Hamilton. So we are working uh, diligently to get to some agreement, some form of agreement. There has been a call out to residents to say, hey, listen, prepare for plan B. For many residents, there there isn't a plan B. I mean, see, it's either HSR or bust. What's the message to those individuals? I think the key message there is HSR customers are encouraged to consider alternative forms of transportation. That may be in the form of carpooling or ride sharing with their co-workers. Smartcommute.ca is a website that we have on the city of Hamilton. Um, it is a carpool zone program, so it will allow people to uh, connect and, and match up and hopefully get to work efficiently. We've spent a lot of it, uh, resources in terms of active transportation, so walking, cycling, um, if the weather permits and, and it's possible. And then most uh, employees, if at all possible, um, they can work from home. Uh, they can talk to their employer. Uh, hopefully that works for them. And, um, you know, we, we do recognize in the impact that this will have on the public, and we're working to uh, reach a deal. Laura, last one for you, and we got about a minute. Some schools in Hamilton rely on HSR buses. Is a contingency plan in place for that? Uh, not that I'm aware of, Rick. That might be a better question for, for Carlisle. Uh, I haven't been involved in any of those contingency plans, um, particularly with the, uh, the school boards. Mr. Khan, do you have any answer to that? Yeah, so uh, effective Thursday, November the 9th at 4.30 a.m., conventional transit and my ride on demand service will cease. Uh, DARTS, which is a separate program, that will that is not impacted. So um, I think we're going to be all in the same boat if there's a labor disruption. And uh, hopefully before Thursday morning, uh, we reach some form of a settlement. Well, fingers crossed in that regard. Uh, Mr. Khan, Ms. Fontana, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you.
Thank you, Rick. Laura Fontana is the Executive Director of Human Resources at the City of Hamilton, and Carlisle Khan, the Acting City Manager, as we all kind of wait and in some cases hope that a deal will get done, if not today, certainly by tomorrow as the clock is ticking towards that uh, Thursday countdown. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new report out from the Ontario Living Wage Network that shows that a full-time worker in this city needs to earn $20.80 an hour to meet their needs to participate in the community. Not necessarily to live stress-free, just to make ends meet. That's well above, as you can imagine, the province's minimum wage of $16.55 an hour. Let's dive into this topic with Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, this figure, this $20.80 an hour figure, was presented to city councillors during their uh, budget planning process yesterday. What was their reaction? What was their response? <laughs> Actually, there was, truthfully, there wasn't much of a response. Uh, we've been going back to city council almost every year since we started the living wage campaign almost a decade ago. And I, I think they do understand uh, that there is a big gap. Um, nowhere in this province can a worker uh, make ends meet at the current min- minimum wage of sixteen fifty-five. So what living wage does is calculate what a worker needs to earn at their job, not only to meet the basic needs like housing and food and clothing, household supplies, transportation, um, but it also allows a very modest bit of participation in the community as well. And, and and so by that standard, minimum wage doesn't come close and living wage is really a opportunity to progressive employers across the community to step up and, and say, yeah, we believe that our employees should be valued. They should be able to earn what they need uh, to participate in the Hamilton community. Is there any stats that show how many people in this community are under that figure? Those stats are are always changing. Last time we looked, it was in the range of about thirty thousand workers in Hamilton, hmm. um, but it, it it's really difficult to tell because uh, things have changed so much since the pandemic. So we don't have the most up to date numbers. That uh, twenty dollars eighty cents an hour living wage figure that's nine percent higher than last year. Is inflation the biggest factor for the increase? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly around the cost of living for for housing. And as you and I have talked about many times in the past, Rick, uh, Hamilton rents have been skyrocketing. And uh, Hamilton is one of the most expensive cities, not only in Ontario, but in North America to live in. And so the new living wage rate does reflect that it costs more than $18,000 for a single person to, to, to live in Hamilton. Add on top of that, we've seen huge increases in grocery prices over the last couple of years as well. So that's factoring in. The living wage, though, does recognize that there's been some improvements in in some public policies as well. So, for example, the Canada Child Benefit, some of the Ontario Child Benefits have, have been increased over the last little while. So that has a little bit of downward pressure, but it's not enough to really see this 9% increase that we saw over last year. 
Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. We're talking about the Ontario Living Wage Network's $20.80 an hour figure in order for uh, local workers, full-time workers, to meet the needs and participate in their community. And you mentioned things like rental rates, like the cost of food, transportation, obviously a big factor in this too. At 10.9%, we're staring at an impending or potential HSR strike in just a couple of days. That's not only going to add, you know, stress to those people who rely on the HSR, but it's also going to have a psychological and a financial implication as well. Oh, absolutely. A financial implication, because if low wage workers can't get to their jobs, uh, they're going to have to find alternatives. Hopefully some can can carpool um, and and maybe use other forms of transportation, but it's going to be extremely difficult. So if uh if workers are, are needing to, depending on where they're working and it, if there's uh, no other opportunities, maybe uh, taking Ubers or, or taxis to get to their job because otherwise they may lose those jobs. We've uh, talked about the minimum wage of sixteen fifty-five. We know some employers are offering that living wage of, of twenty eighty um, or, or a little bit less or a little bit more, but at least close to it. And do we know how big of an impact it's having on those employees? Well, every report we've seen uh, shows that when workers are paid a living wage there are significant benefits to the employers and we've seen reduced training costs uh reduced turnover when when workers feel valued uh they want to stay with the organization so they're they're not as likely to to go looking for for other jobs and and so that certainly has a benefit on local employers and 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 they're seeing that and a number of uh organizations in Hamilton have expressed a lot of interest in living wage. So we're going to be having uh, a webinar later this month in conjunction with the city's economic development department, really just explaining what a living wage is, the process for becoming certified and, and how they can be part of it. And how can people participate in that webinar? Yeah, we're going to be posting, uh, posting the, uh, uh, the information on our website in, in the days to come. So if, uh, if, if listeners would like to uh, go to hamiltonpoverty.ca, we'll, we'll have that information up there. Excellent stuff. Tom, always uh, thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New survey out from BDO Debt Solutions that shows that Canadians are concerned about debt And how could they not be with a rising cost of living, whether it's at the grocery store, your rent, your mortgage, inflation in general? Things cost a lot more and we're feeling it. There's also a stigma attached to it. So this is the BDO Debt Stigma Survey, and it shows that 56% of Canadians are shutting down. They're, They're finding it a challenge to talk about their financial issues with even family and friends. And that percentage is even higher here in Ontario. Joining me now is Paul Anachek, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions here in Hamilton. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Rick. It's uh, it's November. We talked about Financial Literacy Month, and now it's time to talk about BDO's new debt stigma survey. Yeah. So what's going on? And, and I, I'm sure that, you know, I just relayed the statistic, 56% of Canadians don't really want to talk about it, and, and they find it challenging to talk to someone about their debt. So what are you seeing? Well, Rick, certainly some of these stats are very concerning, you know, and and this was conducted by a ledger for BDO. 
the BDO death stigma survey shows that 56 Canadian percent of Canadians are finding it challenge to talk about their debt with family and friends. Even so much that talking about relationships comes in second at 51% and medical concerns at 34%. Um, what's really concerning about this is that, you know, when we talk about their debt, nearly three in five prefer discussing it with no one. Or, you know, they find they're unsure who to confide with as well. So that is some very shocking numbers that are really starting to come out here in Ontario. The numbers, 57% prefer not to talk to anyone all about financial issues. For those struggling with that, it's even more difficult with 83% find it difficult to talk to even family or friends about their concern. What's even shocking is that 58% who have debt admit they're worried about the current debt situation. However, 30% openly admit they have no plans to talk about their debt with anyone. These are some amazing stats we're seeing coming out with our debt stigma survey, Rick, this year. And it really shows that Canadians are struggling. However, Canadians are struggling so much, our heads are almost getting back in the sand and we want to almost ignore what's going on around us or we don't know who to talk to. Well, there is some good news in that regard, because as you mentioned, it's November, which means it's Financial Literacy Month here in Canada, and really a, a golden opportunity for people to grow their financial literacy and their know-how. It is a golden opportunity. You know, it is the 13th Annual Financial Literacy Month, and this year is Managing uh, your money in a changing world. And that's a theme that, you know, they change every year. I think it's a perfect theme for this year, given what we have seen the last few years. And let's face it, things are challenging. Canadians are facing some of the biggest challenges and biggest changes due to high inflation, rising interest rates. And the thing is, we don't know if that is going to change in the near future. We're hopeful that the Bank of Canada, you know, has put us on the right path. However, we need to start seeing some of the results. We need to start seeing some of those uh, interest rates start coming down in the near future. So I really can't stress the importance enough this month about growing your financial literacy skills. You know, especially this month, focus on yourself. Focus on, you know, what's important to you. Because we can see from the BDO debt stigma survey is that you don't want to talk about it with family and friends. Well, you know, why is that? We need to change the perception of Canadians this month. Absolutely. We've got a minute to go. What final advice do you have for our listeners today? You know, we're in the midst of an affordability crisis, Rick. You know, if there was ever a time to grow your financial knowledge, it's now. When you're considering financial uncertainty is facing so many nationwide, so many here in Ontario, due to high inflation rates, due to increasing interest rates, grow your skills and knowledge has never been a most, most important. You know, give us a call. We have a free confidential appointment at one eight five five bdo debt or visit our website at bdodebt.ca to schedule appointment. Even if you don't think you need the help right now, knowing that there are options for you in the future is going to relieve some of your debt stress. Always nice to have options. Paul, appreciate the time. We'll talk to you on Saturday during uh, Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions uh, at 11 o'clock here on CHML. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Rick. Paul Anachuk is Vice President Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's switch gears and talk about what is going on in Gaza. Because last month on this show, we spoke with a Burlington business owner who has family in Gaza and with Israeli troops moving in with his ground offensive 
And the death toll mounting along the Strip, we're hearing it's now upwards of 10,000, including 4,000 children. I think it's time to get an update from our friend Faraz Arafat. Faraz is a business owner in Burlington who has family in Gaza and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Faraz, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Brett. How are you? I'm I'm okay. Uh, at last we spoke, you had your parents who were in Gaza, your uh, two brothers, I believe it was, uh, along with them. G- give us an update. What have you heard? Uh, well, uh, there isn't much of uh, good news, to be honest. It just got worse since we spoke. Uh, the situation um, is definitely more dire than last time. Uh, my family right now is struggling with finding uh, foods and water. They are rationing whatever supplies they have. Um, they still hear the bombing. Uh, it's been really intense in the past few days. And even though that they are near the borders in the south, they can still hear the bombing all across Gaza. And they hear even the screams and people shouting and screaming at night. It's really horrific. Um, Right now, we are like in contact with them, but the communications keeps—we keep losing communications, and uh, it's spotty. We from time to time, I manage to talk to them for like 10, 15 minutes uh, every other day, but sometimes there's no communications, there's no internet, there's no uh, information at all. They are in total. Uh, ignorance of what's happening themselves. They don't have access to uh, TVs or internet, so they have no idea what's happening in the news. I am giving them updates all the way here from Canada, which is, like, unbelievable. Um, And, like, yeah, so overall the situation just is getting worse, and I don't know what's in sight. When we last spoke, your family was leaving where they had lived. Where are they now? I'm still uh, sheltering in the south. They are staying with uh, a family, another family in Gaza. Uh, they haven't moved from that uh, location in the past uh, since they moved last. It's been like about two or three weeks now in that same location. Uh, it's uh, from what I hear from them. Basically, the situation around them is really dire. Like all night, they just hear the bombing. In the morning, they wake up at 6 a.m. and they go hunting for food and water, looking for supplies to maintain them. It's just like, honestly, it's like the dark ages. Hmm. And I would imagine, I mean, they're not the only ones going out looking for food or, or medicine no, or whatever no, the case many is. People are looking for food everywhere and they, there's looters right now. People are, there's like discontent among people, so, civil disobedience, like everything that we can imagine that could be bad is happening right now. Are they, and we talked about this previously, are they looking to somehow get out? Is there an opportunity to get they out? They are trying everything. My brother, One of my brothers works for the UN, so there's, uh, he's been trying to see if he can get some coordinations for our family to leave. But uh, from what I heard, it's impossible right now. Nobody's leaving. Uh, they allowed some foreigners to leave. Even Canadians uh, still are trapped in, in Gaza, unable to leave. Uh, the borders are just closed uh, permanently, I think. I don't know. Like, they open for a few hours sometimes for humanitarian basis, but I'm not sure how this is controlled and who's allowed to leave. Nobody from Gaza, at least, as far as I know, is allowed to leave. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Faras Arafat, a business owner in Burlington who has family in Gaza. And as you can tell, it is a uh, an extremely dire situation in uh, in the Strip. You mentioned communication being cut off. How often are you able to connect with your family? Is it every day? 
Uh, sometimes every day. I either so one of my family members managed to get uh, a SIM card from Europe that allows them to connect to the Israeli network. So from now to time, when the communication is cut, they can send me a message telling me that they are okay. So that's like a piece something that I like hold into when I can't reach them and I can't hear from them. We know that the uh, Israeli ground offensive has begun. How how concerned are they? How concerned are you? They are extremely concerned. They hear uh, from other people uh, about uh, people losing their lives while they were evacuating, moving from the north to the south. Even the routes that Israel allows people to travel on are being bombed. So they're hearing horrible things about what's happening there. They hear uh, about what happened to the hospitals, uh, the last hospital shelling. Uh, there's less spaces for people to get treatment. There's no access to meds. So they are they are really scared. They don't know what is happening. They are not sure what are going to be the next steps. Like I talk to them and I ask them if they think any solutions is going to happen. They, they don't know. They are totally disoriented. Uh, right now, there's no, uh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, to be honest with you. Hmm. And, and we've heard that, uh, um, you know, even from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as early as yesterday. This is this is going to be a long uh, and gruesome and, and bloody conflict, and it seems like no end is sight. I, I just, I offer my thoughts and prayers to you and your family that everyone stay safe. I appreciate that, Rick. I really hope for everyone's sake, everyone stay safe as the civilian life matters, and I really hope that people uh, find a way to stop this. I'm hoping for a ceasefire. And I'm hoping that we will stop this madness. Too many kids died so far. Too many kids died. Absolutely. Frost, thank you for the time. We'll certainly keep in touch. Thank you so much, Ray. Frost Arafat is uh, the owner of a Burlington business, has family in Gaza, and as you can tell, trying times, trying to connect with family, um, you know, being reassured that everything is going to be okay, but there is a massive dark cloud over this entire situation with the ground offensive continuing, the death toll mounting, uh, unsafe water, unsafe living conditions and, and, and looters and having to, you know, forget about going to work, just going out to get some food and get some clean water if there is any at hand. It is just an abysmal situation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Each and every day at this time this week, we are focusing on the IEC, the Industry Education Council of Hamilton, which is working to connect education and employment. And today we're focusing on post-secondary Education. So here with us is a trio of guests. Reese Morgan is the executive director of the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. Gisela Oliveira is an associate director of skills development and international student support at McMaster University. And Bruce Wilson is the director of experiential learning and careers at Redeemer University. Reese, Gisela, Bruce, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Morning, Rick. Uh, hey, Bruce, we'll start with you. Yesterday, we looked at uh, experiential learning in uh, elementary and high school settings. So uh, I, I would think that, you know, college and university students are much more laser focused when it comes to experiential learning, that hands-on application, and and really, at the end of the day, how it relates to their planned career path. Is that an accurate statement? They are, and that's accurate. They are focused. They uh, are taking their academic studies and bringing it to the workplace, and they're doing it, you know, in a dis- discipline-specific way. They are trying to uh, make a difference 
to the businesses, but they're also trying to prepare themselves for that next stage of their careers. Gisela, are you also noticing that laser focus more so each and every year? Is it getting more focused by the year? Definitely. Um, a proof of that is that uh, for the first time in our September annual career fair on campus, we had quite a number of first-year students at the career fair just looking around and seeing what industry has to offer and what opportunities out there for them to tap onto. Well, I know there's lots of opportunities in this city for sure when it comes to McMaster, Redeemer, Mohawk College, and then other big pillars in the community, whether it's Leuna or ArcelorMittal DeFasco or Stelco. Reese, let's go to you. How how does the Industry Education Council of Hamilton and the community partners that I just mentioned, and there, I know there's many more, but how do you support students when it comes to carving out their career plan? Well, Rick, I think it's really about exposure. It's about, you know, we talk about experiential learning. It really is more so on the idea of getting them early exposed to the possibilities. There's job shadowing, there's twinning, there's there's tours, there's mentoring, there's all those aspects that bring light to what goes on out in the community and so that you're much more aware potentially of the possible career paths that they can get into down the road. Gisela, back to you, building connections with industry partners. Um, is, is that an easy proposition? Because obviously the, the, the companies that I mentioned or the organizations that I mentioned, they want workers who are not going to be, you know, tailing a, a, an employee. They want to be uh, bringing in someone who has some potential. Are, are we seeing a little bit more of that? We are definitely. Employers, especially in the Hamilton community, have been engaging with McMaster University um, through our co-ops and internships, field placements. Um, but sometimes they, they want just a short project where students can come in, um, start the project, end the project. And those are projects that, that sometimes are on the side of the desk and they cannot get to. Um, so McMaster University, we have uh, offered the employment community career tracks, it's called. Um, so it's exactly that small project with small and medium-sized companies, as well as startups. We create those projects, students get mentored, and employers are very happy to participate in that. We also have um, MindSumo, which is a platform that offers employers an opportunity to, um, you know, tap into the voice of the consumer, uh, but also find solutions with our innovative students. Um, And our students have participated in many of those projects with companies. One of them was City of Hamilton, um, the economic development wanted to know what our young professionals wanted of the downtown core. Um, and the other thing that helps with that conversation is um, wage subsidies. We do offer wage subsidies to employers who are uh, providing experiential learning opportunities for students with disabilities, as well as international students. So that conversation is continuous. And I think that companies do see um, a return on investment when they start um, those engagements with students early on through experiential learning. That's great to hear. We're talking about connecting education with employment this week at this time on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Today we're focusing on post-secondary education with our IEC series, the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. And with us is Bruce Wilson from Redeemer University, Gisela Oliveira from McMaster University, and Reese Morgan from the IEC. Uh, Bruce, I'll ask you this. Because we have a shortage of skilled workers in this province, really in this country, in a variety of different industries and sectors, are you finding that more industry partners are contacting you to say, hey, how can we get in and and get that next wave of skilled workers into our place of employment? It's, it's always the case. And I, I'm seeing so much innovation from Hamilton employers to find ways to do that. It's uh, 
the traditional info sessions on campus, but it's also new ways of agreeing with the uh, universities or the college that uh, there are new pathways into employers. And it, it isn't just the traditional cooperative education or internships. And, you know, by the way, there's probably thousands and thousands of students from our schools that are working in Hamilton today. And we don't really know that. That's not so highly visible. But employers know that these people make a difference. And that's why they are finding these ways to get in touch with the students through the schools and, and to secure themselves a position to, to fill that talent pipeline that's so critical for them. Reese, last word to you. How can people in this community who are looking at that experiential learning opportunity, how can they go about fulfilling that need? Well, I think it's it's getting in touch with organizations like the Industry Education Council. We we really work as a catalyst that works between organizations, not only you know post secondary institutions, but you're talking about K to twelve. You're talking about the programs that take place in school, OYAP, high skills majors, dual credit programs, and then of course it leads into college and university programs, and of course you know apprenticeships, which is actually a post secondary destination. But that's where getting more employers, more individuals, and organizations really coming to us and saying, how can we be part of this? How can we, you know, step up and say, we'd like to be mentors. We'd like to offer co-op opportunities. We'd like to offer shadowing. So I think reaching out to any any real, uh, any real organization like yourself, like us to really to say that, how can we help? And, and we're more than willing to act as that uh, uh, talent pipeline, that catalyst between the organizations. A lot more details online, ieChamilton.ca. You can also check out McMaster and Redeemer online and get your education and uh, your career path in line with uh, what you hope to see. Reese, Gisela, Bruce, really appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. That's Reese Morgan from the Industry Education Council of Hamilton, Gisela Oliveira from McMaster University, and Bruce Wilson from Redeemer University. Great discussion. We'll do it all again tomorrow at this time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to talk about death. We don't normally talk about death on the show or really at all as a society unless you know someone famous dies right and then we look back at their life and all the accomplishments that they achieved and all the cool things or in some cases horrible things that the person had done do we need to have more conversations about death aside from again when someone famous dies dr susan srigley is a professor of religions and cultures and a death doula and death educator at nipissing university and joins us now on gmh dr srigley good morning how are you Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. This um, I was really interested after reading your article on theconversation.com titled as a death doula and professor who teaches about dying. I see a need for more conversations about death. That's the headline. Mm-hmm. So why, why is this? Why do we need to talk about death more often than we are currently doing? Well, first, you just you just said that we don't talk about it and admitted that you never talk about it on the radio station. So, <laughs> right, there's just that, that you have to do that preamble tells us a lot about the fact that we don't have these conversations until a death happens. And so, I mean, I think ultimately, and this is really from my perspective as a professor with students in the classroom and teaching courses about death, that what I see when they're telling me that no one talks to them about death and the kinds of effects that that has on them as human beings. And so for them, you know, they lose a pet, they lose a grandparent, they lose a classmate. 
and there's silence, right? It's like an echo chamber and no one is talking to them. And so for them, I mean, there are different responses at different ages, but as young people, they just feel that isolation and and have questions and want to discuss it. And no one wants to, because we've sort of said that's not really a conversation we're supposed to be having, or it's morbid. And so I think that that really compounds their grief and and without having safe spaces where they can discuss their questions, their anxieties about death, it makes our experiences of death more difficult. And there's a lot of research and evidence to to back that up. In fact, it, it's I, I liken it to our hesitancy to speak about finances and money. We just don't talk about it with other people, or, <laughs> That's right. or, or even family, right? And with death, we don't talk about it until it kind of happens to us or to to someone close to us. Is it? Is it healthy to talk about it? I believe it's healthy to talk about it. It's a natural process. I think we've sort of turned something that is really quite natural and happens to everyone into something that is, you know, uh, you know, not a topic for conversation. So I believe, you know, that we can have healthy conversations about death, not dwelling on it, but but in a way that helps us prepare for the inevitability of it, right? And so that we're not blindsided by death when it actually occurs. And I also think it makes a difference for the dying, um, because if we're death averse and, and death phobic, and we have a loved one who is dying, and my students admit this, that, you know, when granny or grandpa's in the hospital and they're sick, or even someone they know or a friend, you know, what they say to me is that they don't visit them because they don't know what to say or they don't know what to do. And I, I mean, I, I tell them that you don't have to say anything. You don't have to have any answers to this to this reality, this experience. But showing up for someone makes a huge difference in their experience of the dying process. So I think, you know, just as a community, being able to be present and and there for people who are going through the experience of dying or for people who are just going through the experience of grief is is a healthier way to process that kind of uh, that kind of sadness. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Susan Srigley, Professor of Religions and Cultures, a death doula and death educator at Nipissing University. We're talking about, you know, feeling the need and, and having more conversations about death. Where do we start? Because we're so adverse uh, about talking about this topic, how, how do we bring it up? How do we discuss it with others? Right. Well, uh, for me, it's in the classroom, and that's usually my students' first experience of it. Uh, some people do it the route of advanced directives, you know, trying to get their affairs in order, having conversations about, you know, what method of disposition do you want? What do you want done with your body after you die? Uh, it could be about, you know, what kind of funeral do you want? You know, do you want music? Do you want something religious or not religious? Um, and I think that this is the role that death doulas are playing as well or can play in our culture because death doulas are like they're guides for, you know, the fact that we die and the fact that we're mortal. And so um, another Another possibility is to have death cafes, which are popping up. And this is uh, just really uh, an opportunity for people to just in in no particular, you know, sort of order have 
unrestricted conversations over coffee and cake about all things death and dying. You know, I think that the problem is, is that because it's such a taboo subject, there are no spaces where we can have these conversations. So I tell my students to talk to their family members. Uh, People can go to death cafes. Um, You know, there are different ways that we can, you know, start changing the conversation in the way that, you know, it's really been relegated to the sidelines. Do we not talk about death because we don't, I mean, we're looking at our own mortality and, and whenever that day is going to come, we just don't want to think about maybe leave leaving loved ones behind, having unfinished business. Does that kind of thought process get in the way? Oh, yes. I mean, let's let's be real. Death is terrifying, right? And and I'm sure we've all had those moments of, you know, three in the morning, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Of oh, I've been there. <laughs> facing that existential reality, you know, but but I but I do think, you know, I I think that if we do have spend some time thinking about it, preparing for it, no, keeping it on the horizon, knowing that it's there, that that our experience of it will be less traumatizing when it does happen. But but yes, it is a fearful thing, and so that's always going to impede our ability to 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 really contemplate it. I feel like you know teaching death education is one of the ways that I get to keep it at the forefront of my mind uh, because it's you know sort of part of my daily daily existence. It's a great conversation, and you can read more about it on theconversation.com. Dr. Susan Srigley, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Srigley is a death doula and death educator at Nipissing University and a professor of religions and cultures. And the way I think about it is, you know, thinking about death, I think, makes life even more special. And so, hey, think about it a little bit more. Maybe have that conversation with family and loved ones. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and... And review.